I was just thinking, I have a loud voice when I need to use it, but it seems like I'm having to speak extra loud today, and that's because there's an air conditioner going on. Uh, okay, we're live and being recorded. Um, there's a passage in Father Alexander Schmemann's uh, journals that were published a few years ago. Um, but I've, I've, there are many passages I find very touching. This one uh, struck a chord with me this month. Uh, he had an audience with the Coptic Patriarch in Alexandria. And there were pilgrims from various places around Egypt there that day. And a number of them were uh, children. And Father Alexander in his journal says uh, he was very moved by the fact that this patriarch, a very important man, very learned man, uh, simply asked the questions of these children and responded to them as a pastor. And the reason I thought of this passage is uh, when under normal circumstances, <laughs> I like to plan ahead and say, okay, this year for the Oblates, we're going to work on the virtues, or this year we're going to work on uh, Lexio Divina, or whatever it is. Um, there we go. So tell me if you can't hear me now, okay? Just if you can't hear something, just raise your hand, but I think you'll hear me now. Uh, under normal circumstances, I would plan out several months' worth of talks and then methodically go through and make sure I've covered the points I want you to understand. Uh, under present circumstances, it feels like uh, Father Brendan stole a bunch of my ideas in his homily today. Uh, but it feels like just about every day something new comes up, you know? Uh, and. <laughs> Yeah, so, so you can see uh, my voice is very audible for, at long distances, even through walls. Um, since uh, things are very uncertain, it seems to me the most important thing, first of all, is to go back to the basics and just remind ourselves who we are as a church, uh, what, who God is, what He's doing, uh, and maybe you know, just get the, those fundamentals down. The other thing is, it'd be helpful for me to hear from you uh, what's on your mind. So I'm going to just talk a little bit today, first of all. Uh, I have just at the, the top of my notes here, fear and over-responsibility. Uh, so I just want to talk about how, uh, under the present circumstances, our most important thing to start with is to meet fear with faith. Uh, so not to be afraid. And you've heard me say this before, I'm sure, but it doesn't hurt to repeat things because we all need to have things repeated for us. Uh, the new commandment is love, but uh, probably the commandment that Jesus gives us more than any other in the Gospels is don't be afraid. Right? So don't, don't be afraid, I'm here. And so it's important for us to hear this because it's faith that allows us to grow beyond our immediate emotional reactions to circumstances so that we can approach things rationally. This seems strange because uh, in the modern world we've often had it claimed that faith and reason are somehow opposed or uh, that uh, they're two separate ways of knowing. I think they're closer than that because I think to be rational 
you first have to make certain assumptions about the world that, for instance, that truth is the same for everybody, okay? And, uh, you know, part of our difficulty in politics today is it's not clear that everyone agrees to that, that truth is the same for everybody. Um, if, if you do believe that, then that means I can listen to just about anybody and get something helpful because we're all trying to look at the same thing. Obviously, people can try to deceive us, but we can listen even to our enemies and even to people with whom we disagree and listen with reason and calm and not be defensive. Say, like, no, that's wrong. I have to keep this person from talking. Otherwise, everything will fall apart. That's a response of uh, reactivity, of fear. Um, Jesus, when he's confronted with all kinds of lies and, and uh, deception at his trial, just doesn't bother to say anything. He doesn't get upset. He simply accepts that that's how some people are going to be sometimes. And it's not his responsibility at that moment to talk them out of it. <laughs> um, sometimes all there, all there is to do is simply entrust oneself to the Father. And that might look like martyrdom. Uh, another thought I had in preparing for this, uh, two of my favorite movies are uh, Man for All Seasons and uh, Of Gods and Men. And it occurred to me when I started writing blog posts when the pandemic started uh, that these two movies have a lot in common. I mean, they're both about a person or a group of persons basically in an impossible situation. And it's just going to get worse until they die. <laughs> you, you see that very much from the outset. Of course, we all know the story of Thomas More before A Man for All Seasons starts. And um, when, uh, when, if you don't know the story of, of Gods and Men, it becomes fairly clear early on that uh, these Trappists are going to die. And the, the question then is, it's not a question of like, um, you know, how bad the people were who, uh, who were opposed to them. It's more a question of how did they approach a situation like this in faith? And I find this very compelling. And it's interesting that there's a turning point. Father Timothy pointed this out to me in the movie of Gods and Men. Uh, so this is about the Trappists in Algeria in 1996 during the Civil War there. Uh, the, the radical Islamists were uh, threatening to take over the village around them. And the French government came and told the monks, get out. And uh, the prior said, no, you know, he was going to be a hero. We're not leaving our people. And then after that, they have a, a community meeting. And his monks are, are pretty mad at him. <laughs> said, that's great for you to talk for us, but like, do we have any say at all? And uh, it's a very interesting conversation. But the turning point comes when they are at table. And the, the table reading, the spiritual reading, uh, says that the most important thing is to pay attention to the weakest member. Okay? And what happens to the prior is he grows in his understanding of the situation to the extent that he can be a father to the weakest member of the community rather than himself being strong for everybody else, being responsible to make sure everybody's strong. Instead, he, he caters or he, he lowers himself to the young monk who's really struggling. And what we see throughout the film is that the older monks are all being very patient and kind and, and compassionate toward the monk who's afraid. Right? And not shaming him or saying, well, you should be tougher than that. <laughs> uh, there's a, another scene in the movie that I, I uh, think of often. Uh, 
the, the oldest, I think he's the oldest monk, he's the doctor. Uh, he's very frail, he's got uh, asthma, I believe. And they're, they're washing dishes uh, after a meal, there's the two of them, the young monk and the doctor. And uh, the doctor makes some very innocuous comment about community things, this, this, and that. And the young monk blows up at him, swears at him, and marches out. And the doctor doesn't have any response at all. He says to himself, well, he hasn't been sleeping very well. <laughs> right? So he makes an excuse for him. Well, you know, he's afraid. Uh, he doesn't take it personally that he's just been uh, called off, you know. So anyway, the reason I bring up these movies, and then uh, there's a third movie that just came out that's in a similar vein, A Hidden Life, about Franz Jägerstatter in Austria, who refused to take the oath of allegiance to Hitler and was eventually martyred. Uh, what, what's interesting about this movie and a, a Man for All Seasons is that while the movie, the filmmakers were very respectful of the faith of these men, uh, in both cases they tried to make it more of an existential tale than a religious tale. And so if you read the life of Franz Jägerstatter, You'll find out that, uh, first of all, his wife was extremely devout, and you don't really see this in the movie so much, that she was really instrumental in getting him from being a, a bit of a, a roughhouser type of guy, young guy sowing his oats and so on, to being very devout, the sacristan at his church, uh, reading the church fathers and so on. And so when he is contemplating how he should respond in a no-win situation, you know, he, he's not going to take the oath but then he's going to suffer for it somehow or other. <laughs> That's not going to work. Um, what we don't see is the dialogue between him and his wife and the way they pray through this together and they meet this together. Um, in a similar way, uh, the, the play that was the inspiration for A Man for All Seasons is explicitly existential. And in, what I mean by this is the playwright and then the, the move, the filmmakers, want us to see a, a, an individual standing up for his own beliefs, right? And that's inspiring. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's, the situation's actually a little different because it's not just an individual standing up for his beliefs. Uh, it's an individual who's part of a church who's trying to allow the church to mold his response to the situation, that his faith is... And in the case, again, of Franz Jägerstater, his wife's faith are what make it possible to do the heroic thing, to be courageous, to be calm in the face of violence, uh, to respond rationally rather than angrily. Uh, so there's a, whole, there's a whole context here that's being uh, bracketed, let's say, put to one side. Um, and this is very common in the world today. I think a lot of our, our own disquiet comes from forgetting what the church is. I saw um, <laughs> there was, you know, I'm, I'm friends on, on, with a, a lot of different types of people on Facebook because uh, our monastery page is connected to my personal page. And so I have friends who are extremely far to the left, extremely far to the right. And there are two two discussions that came up that this past week that really made me laugh. One was uh, that the traditionalists were having this sort of infighting question about, 
what do you call a traditionalist Catholic who doesn't support Trump? <laughs> like we need a subcategory of the traditionalists. Rad trad isn't enough. We need uh, something more specific. And uh, it, it was amusing, but it's also troubling just in this sense that we're all part of the church. Like the, why, why not just be Catholic, you know? Why not be like universal Catholic? And now the second thing that happened that I saw uh, gets more to the point that I want to make. And that is there was some discussion about, um, I don't remember the specifics, but the basic idea was whether we have to sign on to this part of the teaching of the church or this part, or if we can reject this part because it came after Vatican II, or if we can reject this part because uh, so on and so forth. And um, the, the discussion was being carried on in Spanish, and so I had to, uh, to my Spanish isn't very good. So I may have misinterpreted some of it, but one of the questions was, you sort of, you're not part of the church if you think this. You're in danger of not being a part of the church if you have this idea. And now, this is what I want to say. You're a member of the church if you're baptized and you're not in mortal sin, right? Actually, you're a member of the church even if you're in mortal sin. You, you become a member of the church because God calls you and baptizes you. And then, from there, you have all the resources of everybody else in the church, including Jesus Christ and all the saints, okay? So you, we never attack these problems by ourselves. Not only do we have Christ with us, but we have the rest of the church, even if we don't agree with each other. There's some mysterious way in which we're all working on this together and God is working through all of us in different ways. And uh, the last bit of introduction I'm going to say, and then I'll get to my topic. And as I said, I'm going to... Um, what time is it right now? I, I forgot to bring my watch. 11.37. 11.37. Okay, so this is... Um, it started at 20, so at about an hour and so I'm going to try to leave about a half hour for questions and discussion if there aren't that many questions uh, I I always can talk so there's no problem don't worry we won't we won't end early we could end early if you want um, so I was having kind of a deja vu moment again this month because uh, two years ago I was uh, just about to embark on, on my sabbatical, which lasted four weeks. And um, uh, it was just at this time that uh, very suddenly there was this quiet little announcement in Catholic media uh, that um, Cardinal McCarrick was no, no longer going to be a cardinal. <laughs> and uh, then details of this started coming out and they were quite shocking. I've not followed, uh, I hadn't followed Cardinal McCarrick's career. And uh, so uh, I didn't know much about it. I learned a lot about it. Um, Rod Dreer, the journalist, uh, knew lots about the case, but he was, for, for about 20 years, was unable to report on it because his sources wouldn't give him permission to go public because they were so afraid of Cardinal McCarrick and, and others who could harm them. So finally, when this came out, then we got all the details, and it was uh, not, not super pleasant. And I remember saying to the Oblates at the time, uh, you know, when I'm ready, I'll, I'll make a statement about this. <laughs> so two things about that. One is, just because something bad happens doesn't mean we have to have an answer for it right away. And oftentimes when we try to answer too quickly, we say things that we can't stand behind later on. So sometimes it's just a matter of waiting. 
you know, it's, it's not fun not to have anything to say and to sit there in your unpleasant feelings, but they go away eventually, especially if you keep doing your Lectio, praying your rosary, doing the divine office, going to church, sitting up, putting your feet back, looking at the beautiful sky in the summer and listening to the birds. Um, there are all kinds of things you can do to get yourself through these unpleasant emotional, initial emotional responses so that you can get to a place of perspective and say, okay, so what's really going on here? Uh, the second thing is when I, when I finally spoke to you all, uh, the, the word I came up with was consolation. And uh, if, you, if you need consolation, I really recommend that you go and read 2 Corinthians. Just sit down and read that. Paul was obviously going through some terrible crisis in his vocation just before he wrote this letter. He says that, you know, he was despairing of life itself. Uh, some, some commentators go as far as to say he was feeling suicidal. Uh, he clearly was in a very dark place. And then uh, he, he works his way through it. And he goes on, you'll see the word consolation uh, comes up probably a dozen times in the first two chapters of this beautiful letter. And it really is a beautiful letter. It can be a little hard to follow because it seems like it's several letters stitched together. Um, but he sees that he had to go through this time because this purified him from his own self-involvement with God's project so that he could simply be a conduit of God's grace be a minister of reconciliation, as he says in chapter 5 of that, that lovely letter. So I was thinking of this idea of consolation. Uh, it's, it's no fun being a Catholic and being a priest, especially in some ways, when all of the, everything in the news is about how corrupt the hierarchy is. Um, well, uh, that's, that's part of the deal. This is, this is like my family, so I have to be ready to take some, some lumps from this. Uh, so where's the consolation in it? The consolation is found in many places. God has not abandoned us. The church is, I think, one of the difficulties we have again is we think of the church as a voluntary organization that we join uh, that exists in this world to make us better citizens so we can be sort of nicer to each other and more profitable for expanding our economy or whatever it is that we might do. And this, of course, gets everything in the reverse. Uh, the church is the body of Christ. Uh, the inauguration of this new reality, this new creation, is in the incarnation of the Word of God in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And then in baptism, we become members of the same incarnate body, this, this, this same new reality, new creation. And we never lose this connection and we, we maintain this connection even with those who have died. So uh, in particular, we look at the consolation that the saints provide for us, that they're still in communion with us. Uh, and about that, shortly after that uh, time, I read this amazing book um, called Against the Grain, and it was talking about uh, how much we know about cultures from, say, 6000 BC, before there are written records. It's called Against the Grain. Uh, it's written by a guy who, uh, his whole project is kind of interesting at this moment. It's uh, how do people who live at the fringe of sort of big governments, like keep from being corrupted by those governments? How do they stay at, at arm's length? Um, and he, the reason he's talking about grain is he says, uh, empires depend on certain types of economic arrangements and the cultivation of grain made this possible. <laughs> 
And uh, the people who resisted the empires in the ancient world were those who were hunters and gatherers, uh, and especially ones who lived by um, riverbeds where they could just go and collect fish and things like that. And they didn't have to raise grain and be taxed. <laughs> so um, anyway, that it's just kind of an interesting thing. But the thing that struck me about this book is uh, when, when Jesus goes, Peter tells us that Jesus goes and preaches to the, the souls in prison. Uh, these are all of those persons who lived before Christ who couldn't have known, who couldn't have heard the gospel from the apostles. But Jesus comes and preaches to them when he goes down into hell. And we don't know. Maybe 70 million of those people said, yes, we want out. <laughs> we will accept the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We don't know. The church could be made up of uh, you know, 80 million people. And we could be just starting. We could be that uh, in 2,000 years, uh, Chesterton said, uh, people 5,000 years from now may look back at us and say, ah, the early Christians. <laughs> right? So we just don't know. God's plans are much bigger than we, we can possibly conceive of. And uh, his message, again, over and over again, is don't be afraid. Just be faithful. Like, do the things you're supposed to do. Don't be over-responsible. You're not the one who's going to save the world. <laughs> um, Cardinal George got a little... We might have to cut this part out of the... Uh, maybe I have to pause this, but... Uh, Cardinal George got in a dis, uh, dispute in the media with one of his priests... Uh, who he was trying to move him to a new parish because there's supposedly these six-year term limits on uh, pastors. And uh, an interviewer spoke to the priest and said, uh, what will you do uh, if, if he forces you out? And he says, I'll start my own church. And then the interviewer went to Cardinal George later on and said, uh, he says he's going to start his own church. What do you say to that? And the Cardinal's response was, what, is he going to die and rise in three days? <laughs> So, you know, Cardinal George had this very down-to-earth, simple understanding that the church is, is one. There's one church, right? Um, and all of the baptized are members, and we are all connected to each other. So when one rejoices, we all rejoice. When one is sorrowing, we're all sad. Uh, and there are lots of saints rejoicing in God's presence right now. And when we're at the liturgy and we invoke them and we have the icons of Our Lady and John the Baptist and St. Benedict and St. Anthony, they're standing there with us. And we hope so are our grandparents and our great-grandparents and all kinds of people because there's only one sacrifice. There's only one. Christ only died once. And when we stand at the altar, we're there at, at the cross with him. We're also at the Last Supper. And so this should be the source of tremendous consolation. We don't have to fix the world. Christ is doing that. He's, he's advancing this reconciliation in some mysterious way just by our being at the altar together, right? Just by our coming together, sharing that time together, communing together. So let me now talk about fear and over-responsibility because um, probably most of us um, are experiencing vague senses of unease these days. I wrote three months ago that... Uh, this was on our blog. I'm, I'm going to be recapitulating a lot of stuff I've written uh, in the last three months because I think we just need to hear it over and over again. We need to hear these basic ideas. Uh, one of the great dangers... See, that, that's what I said was going to happen. Um, 
is uh, obviously we don't want lots of people to die and get sick. But in the meantime, we're being taught that every single person I meet is dangerous. Every single person I meet is a potential threat to my health and my grandmother's health or whatever, however my, my, you know, the, however we want to say it. And the thing is, it may be true, but what it does psychologically is it puts us at this, uh, it, it ratchets up the fear. It ratchets up the, the sense of responsibility I have to protect everybody by staying away from everybody. <laughs> and um, uh, we also have a similar thing going on in our political life, and that is that uh, things are so polarized that people who don't agree with me in politically are not just wrong or maybe needs a little more information. Potentially, they're actually evil, right? They're, they're doing something wrong. They're going to hurt me. They're going to hurt the people I love. And, uh, and again, this may be true of some people, okay? I'm not saying that everybody is uh, benign in their intentions all the time. That's clearly not the case. But uh, there was, uh, you know, the, was it the Cato Institute that just came out with a survey that said, you know, 60% of Americans don't feel comfortable saying what they think politically. Uh, they, they're afraid to, to say, to speak their mind. Um, they're, they're very poor existentialists. <laughs> um, but this is because we're afraid if we say the wrong thing, it's going to be taken out of context and we could get fired from our jobs and so on, right? So all this fear, you know, all, we're paralyzed. Uh, what are we supposed to do? Um, so that's, that's just the, the basic difficulty we're running into. Obviously, the, the, what we want to do is respond with faith and with courage, and I'll get to that in a moment. But first, I want to say a little bit about over-responsibility because this is also uh, a part of fear and stress. So according to most, the way most people think of stress, I think, is you think that stress means I have too much to do. Right? I have too many things to do, and uh, uh, I'm not going to get them done, and things are going to fall apart, and I'm stressed out. Uh, I'm stressed out because I'm, I, I have to call my sister because she's having a bad day, and, oh, I forgot I was supposed to do this over here, and so on. Um, there's a different way of thinking about stress, which is related to this, but slightly different, and, and gives us more agency rather than saying, oh, my gosh, I have so much to do. And that is, don't be so responsible. <laughs> Maybe you're not responsible for everybody or everything. Uh, and this is tricky. Uh, in a democracy, uh, we do have some responsibility to follow the news, I suppose, to be informed voters, for example. Um, but in the end, we can't, we, we don't get to decide the policy, you know? Um, we have to live with whatever people in authority decide for us. And we can argue for what we, we, we think is right, but at some point we have to say, I'm not responsible for that decision. I am responsible for how I respond to the decision, and it might not be pleasant. Uh, all of us have to deal with uh, decisions that people in authority make that we don't like. Um, perhaps they're even malign in some way. Um, but that's, you know, then we, we can simply respond to that. We don't have to change that person. We probably can't. Um, so stress is actually a function of me feeling responsible for too many people. And uh, part of the reason that's stressful is because uh, in the end, uh, that gives power 
to everybody but me. Because as soon as someone doesn't want to be responsible for himself and he wants me to be responsible for him, then I'm really stuck because I, I'm, I have to keep doing stuff and doing stuff and nothing changes, right? And then I get burned out. Um, and we find ourselves, I think, in these situations frequently because we, we think that being a moral person, a good person, and caring for people means being responsible for them. But in the end, we, we have to answer for ourselves at the judgment. Uh, those of us in authority will have to answer for those who are under our charge. So I have to answer for the brothers in the community. Bishops have to answer for their diocese and so on. Uh, politicians have to answer for their citizens uh, whom they serve. So there is some accountability there. But these are very formal. I, I think you know parents have to answer for how, how they raise their children. Right? There are certain lines of authority that are real. But then there are other lines of authority that aren't so obvious that, that it's our responsibility to do X, Y, Z thing. Um, and the world is very, very complicated and we could try to take responsibility for um, everything if we wanted to because you can, you can go on the internet today and read about everything that's going on and be completely in a mess because what are we going to do? So just like Father Brendan said today, uh, it, just, it comes at you so fast you feel like you're just overwhelmed. Well, one thing you could do is just don't read the news. <laughs> you know, that sounds radical. Um, and again, it might even sound sort of um, irresponsible. There's a book, uh, uh, I, I mentioned this book, Black Swan, last time. Uh, another book that came to my attention this time. I was going to get the author's name. Maybe you know it. Um, uh, a friend of mine has been sending me excerpts from it because he finds it so helpful. Uh, I think it's called How to Do Nothing, something like that. The basic argument of the book is that um, when we're feeling like we have to be doing something all the time, and by the way, this is the existential problem. This is why I'm reserved about the directorial choices in A Man for All Seasons and A Hidden Life. Uh, when I'm responsible for sort of making myself into who I'm supposed to be and I have to choose and stand on what I believe, it puts a lot of pressure on us, especially when then again we're being overwhelmed with all kinds of uh, uh, information from outside sources. So suddenly we have all these decisions to make and it's paralyzing. And there, we don't have the criteria for how to prioritize these decisions or decide like how to make them. Well, one thing we can do is step back and pray, invite God into the conversation, uh, maybe choose one thing that seems most important to get right. And then pray about that. And don't, don't worry about the other things right now. Because uh, we can't all do everything at once. So let's just, let's focus on one thing. What am I gonna get done today? And then can I make that dis decision from a place of peace, from a place of, uh, um, and, and a place of trusting that God will meet me there. That this is what God wants me to do. And uh, then even if I make a mistake, if I'm trying to do God's will, God will help me to see that this, this didn't work or there's maybe another option here. But when I include God in the, in the whole question from the beginning, and this requires me to step back and not just try to answer out of my own resources, um, I can relax a little bit because uh, I have an all-powerful, all-knowing God who's helping me. Okay? And it doesn't mean that God's going to solve all of our problems either. Uh, just because God is 
omnipotent and omniscient doesn't mean we suddenly become that by asking him to tell us everything, <laughs> right? doesn't work quite that way. Um, he's not going to reveal to us more than, we, than will be healthy for us to know at any given moment, right? So we can just relax and say, what I happen to know now is probably enough to make the decision I need to make to please God. And then, you know, when, when we're up to it, we can inform ourselves about this, this, or that. Uh, there's a, um, a journalist who, whom I, I like very much, which is ironic because his politics are, are about as far away from mine as, as they could get. Uh, his name is Glenn Greenwald. And uh, I, I started reading him because I was concerned about uh, some of the... Uh, in what I felt were invasions of privacy that were happening after the Patriot Act was passed and uh, some of the dangers this posed for religious life. And uh, so he's, he was an ACLU lawyer and um, he, he quit practicing law to become a journalist to write about these privacy matters. And um, what, I, what I really like about him is that uh, he, he writes out of principle but the other thing is, he writes about what he knows. He doesn't try to opine on everything. And there was an interview with him some years ago, which I found fascinating, and he was asked, uh, if you had advice for a young journalist today, what would you say? And one of the things he said really struck me. He said, focus on one or two issues and get to know those really well, because you'll be much more uh, able to articulate the actual issue uh, you'll be able to persuade people because you will know what you're talking about. You won't make silly mistakes because you haven't, you missed out on some obvious thing here. Um, don't try to report on everything. Let other people report on those other things. So other people can become experts in domestic uh, issues of, say, social security or taxes or something like that. What I know is privacy issues, right? What I know is uh, national security and how it interacts with uh, the, que the whole question of personal privacy. So, uh, similar thing. In uh, the church, as Paul teaches us, we're a body and each of us is a member and members don't do the same thing, right? Each of us has a specific task to do within the body, not to be concerned about the whole, I mean, we should be concerned about the whole thing, but we can't know every issue. We have to trust that there are theologians doing this, there are social workers doing that, there are pastors doing this. Uh, God will raise up the saints we need at the time we need them to help us in whatever things we can't figure out for ourselves. Uh, we can ask the saints, we can read the lives of the saints, we can read their writings, uh, we can read the scriptures and, and the Holy Spirit can inform us. There are all kinds of ways that we come to certainty about God's nearness, that he is uh, behind all the chaos that's going on in the world. There is this quiet presence of God who's leading us to his kingdom. And uh, it's one of the great things about being a member of the Benedictines is we have a long institutional memory and uh, we've, we've, uh, we've been through worse than what we're going through now. <laughs> and so I think of all the Benedictines who lived through the plague in the 14th century or, um, you know, uh, the 
Napoleon just shutting them down left and right, Yosef uh, II forcing them to open schools and do all this stuff. Um, you know, somehow or other, the monasteries keep coming back. <laughs> We're still here, and uh, God is still calling us. Um, and I think perhaps it's a little easier. Uh, one advantage I have personally, though, um, people when they hear this, they, the longer I've been in the monastery, the less uh, um, persuasive this sounds. But I used to say, if God can get me into the monastery, there's hope for everybody. Um, and I, I mean this, that's to say, uh, in a mysterious way, God spoke to me and invited me to give everything up and come follow him in the monastery. It's not something I grew up wanting to do by a long shot. Um, it was a difficult decision to make when it happened because uh, I, I had other options. <laughs> but there was something compelling about God speaking. And if that can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. And so there may be some problem that we're faced with, but God just hasn't called that person yet who's going to fix it. And maybe it's not us. Maybe it's not me who's going to fix that problem. I just have to live with it. Okay, so let me just say a few more things about um, how to overcome fear and the sense of over-responsibility, and then I'm going to take questions. So as I mentioned in my, my blog uh, some, some time ago, in Catholic moral theory, we, we have this idea of the age of reason. And so children be below the age of reason are not normally considered to be responsible for a, a number of things they might do. So for instance, um, uh, we don't usually have them go to confession until they've reached a certain level of reasoning. Okay. Before that, and again, we know this, right? You can't... Um, Parents try these days, but you can't take a four-year-old and, and sort of reason with him or her. Um, only at a very basic level, right? Sometimes you just have to say, do this, do this. And you'll know that uh, after you tell them to do that several times and you say, don't do that, and they do it and they get hurt, eventually the child will trust you and will come to see like, oh, that's why mom told me to do that, <laughs> right? That makes sense. That's reasonable. Um, but when they're four, they can't think this way yet. And that's just, that's okay. Um, but what this means is that rationality is something that's achieved. It's something we grow into. It's something that's a product of maturity. And we can only slip below that, that level of maturity and become somewhat irrational. And the, the, what it is that gives us the, the ability to move into rationality is the ability to uh, bracket our feelings, right? Not to be reactive to things. So children tend to uh, see something and want to do it right away, right? Um, and so one of the things you have to teach a child is you can have your dessert after you eat your broccoli, right? The dessert's fine. I'd like you to eat your dessert and enjoy it, but you can't have it first, even though you like it the, the best, right? Um, and that's because you won't be healthy if you eat your cake and then you're not hungry for your broccoli. Right? The parent knows this, knows that the child will get sick if he eats only sweets, but the child doesn't know this yet and learns by experience and learns that even though I really want that cookie, um, you know, I, I've come to this, I, I had a great sweet tooth when I was younger, and now um, 
I'll pass up sweets just because I know from experience that uh, my life goes easier if I don't eat too many sweets for all kinds of reasons. A lot of it has to do with just the fact that uh, uh, sugar makes me more uh, emotionally uh, energized. And if I don't have sugar, I'm, I'm just calmer, right? And so, um, so I'm more rational when I don't have sugar. And so I don't want sugar, even though there's a part of me that desires it, that craves it still. The rational part of me says, I'm not going to have that, right? So, um, so this is what rationality is. It's the ability to put my feelings to one side and then uh, make decisions that are not corrupted by those feelings. And this is the danger of fear again, is it, it pushes us to do things and make decisions that we're not ready to make. And uh, these can be irrational or less than rational. They can make the situation worse. So the first thing, again, is stepping back from my initial emotional responses and uh, calming myself down. Faith can help us a great deal in this. Um, so the last thing I'm going to, to say about this has to, comes from a sociologist whom I like very much and you've heard me speak about before probably. Her name was Mary Douglas, and um, uh, she's most famous for writing a book called Purity and Danger, uh, which was a groundbreaking book in which uh, she talked about uh, how the concept of purity is cultural. It's not, it's not absolute. Different people will see certain types of things as dirt, and other people will see different types of things as dirt. And part of becoming rational in a culture is learning what that all of us sort of have basic standards for what co constitutes cleanliness, <laughs> right? And that uh, dirt and corruption are dangerous, and this is true in all cultures. And so for us to navigate danger together, we have to have some baseline agreement about what constitutes corruption. And ritual is one of the ways in which we come together to carve out spaces where there's purity together, okay? That's kind of heady stuff. Her follow-up book, I think, is, is more important, <laughs> but, but very few people read it, even though it's a classic. It's called Natural Symbols. And uh, she was an anthropologist before she became a sociologist, and she did her fieldwork uh, in Africa with E. Evans Pritchard, a very famous uh, anthropologist. Uh, so, so she really knows what she's talking about. She has good cross-cultural understandings of how these things go, and she was also a devout Catholic. Um, so in Natural Symbols, she comes up with various typologies of, of uh, societies. And so very interesting stuff. One thing is uh, the phenomenon of, say, witches only comes up in certain types of societies. There aren't witches in every kind of society. They're a product of certain social groupings that happen. Um, and uh, it's, it's a kind of political thing to accuse someone of being a witch, okay? Uh, and so it only works if the political situation is arranged in a certain way. Um, she doesn't say that this is the best kind of society is X, but she kind of hints at it in a way. And uh, this, a society that's very stable is one that's highly articulated, where you have lots of people each has his or her own job in the system. And um, the lines of authority are fairly clear, okay? Which again, partly, partly what that means is 
Each individual is not responsible for everything. <laughs> Each individual is responsible for her or his own part of the whole. Uh, and the whole thing kind of keeps going on its own energy. And, you know, there are many examples of this. They aren't all, and, and some of these societies can have bad things about them. So, for instance, uh, the ancient Aztec society is one of these types of societies where it was very, very articulate, uh, in the sense articulated, uh, lots of social classes, very highly structured uh, ritual and so on, but it included human sacrifices. So there's, so it's not all good. But the point is, uh, if you're a part of this highly articulated structure, you can trust that somebody else is going to be taking care of this thing over here. Part of what we're finding in the breakdown of our cultural situation is we don't trust the people who are supposed to be doing this job over here to be doing it. And we find out that they've been failing or they've been misleading us in some way. And so that makes us uneasy, right? And um, so one possible solution to this, I would say, that, let's start with the, the, the negative one. I would definitely not recommend, unless you think you're called to do this, to go and be like a whistleblower and go in there and fix, you know, the experts who are getting this wrong, I'm gonna go investigate that and force them clean up their act. That's probably going to just wear you out. And if you read like every report on it and you find out that there's all this deception going on, that might be helpful in knowing how to respond. I need a, I need a concrete example that's not controversial. <laughs> that's the difficulty coming up with, uh, you know, someplace where we feel like we've been let down that, that everybody here will agree with. Um, uh, Let's you know we'll go way back. Let's say um, let's let's go back to Watergate or something like that. So people who were supposed to be um, uh, running a campaign were illegally stealing things from the other campaign or whatever. And you you thought that these people were on the up and up, and then it turns out that they're crooks. Um, no, it's helpful to know that that happened and to get good information on it. And then I can make my decision about how to respond whether I really trust the government propaganda or not. Right? It's probably most federal governments are hiding stuff. All right, I think we can live with that to some extent. Um, it may be that I'm called, like so, someone like Glenn Greenwald felt a certain kind of vocational calling to quit working as a lawyer and become a journalist to investigate a specific thing. Maybe that's you. You know, Maybe God's calling you to do that. But if not, uh, what you want to avoid is like getting into a position where you're really worried about this thing you can't control, right? And just say, okay, I, I maybe, it might be good for me to understand that there's this problem here. Uh, so this is, I, I was telling the brothers this morning, um, I pay attention to the news because part of my job as the superior is to protect the monastery, okay? So I, if, if there's, if there are going to be protests that turn violent in Bridgeport, um, I might need to get the brothers out of here, right? I'm not saying it's going to happen, but just I want to at least know because we, you know, we did have a fair amount of looting that took place on Pentecost Sunday, and uh, we couldn't go to the grocery store for several days. And I've talked to others on the south side who were affected by this and so on. So you know, we're just keeping tabs on these things, so we know how to respond if we need to. Um, but to try to like alert everybody else to the problem of looting on the south side and to 
you know, suggest that the, the media hasn't covered it correctly or so on, that could just wear me out. And then I'm not doing my job of just taking care of the brothers, which is the whole reason I was reading the news in the first place, right? So we have to keep a sense of, of priority about what is actually my responsibility. Why am I reading about this? Um, and then just say, you know, other people are responsible. Uh, I know a lot of police officers. Uh, the ones I know, I think, are good, good men. I, I don't know any women police officers, as it happens. Um, I, I, I hope that the mayor and the aldermen will do their jobs. And if they don't, then I, I'll respond at that point. You know, but I can't, I can't, uh, I can't get the mayor to do what I want. So I just have to live with her decision. She's the mayor. I'm not. It's her responsibility to make decisions for the good of the city of Chicago. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. So that's that's my. I'm just laying that out there as a conversation starter, and I'd be interested to hear like any concerns you have, anything you've wanted to hear about that. You're not getting from homilies or your pastor or whatever, or from the bishops, or um, go ahead and throw it at me and I'll see what I can do for you. <laughs> What's on your mind? <laughs> and if you want me to keep talking, I'll keep talking. <laughs> I was reading about this priest that uh, is not following Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, actually this second story that I found on Facebook was related to this problem, that there's this feeling like uh, Pope Benedict and Pope Francis are sort of running parallel churches or something like this, yeah. and, and you have to sort of choose sides. And... Um, I, oh, I'll just say I don't see that that's a logical thing. Um, and again, we don't have to agree with the Pope on every issue. Um, we do have to uh, pray for him. We do have to stay in communion with him. That doesn't, again, require agreeing with everything. Um, and I, I guess I also find it a little weird because... Uh, you know, Benedict XVI is, is a real gentleman, and I'm, I'm not saying Francis isn't, but so he, he might not say anything if he disagrees with Pope Francis, but he doesn't say anything. And, and so I, you know, he, he made a decision before the Lord to step down, and he seems to have been at peace with that. He's continued to write here and there, uh, but it's still one church, you know. And, and we've had, you know, we've had a whole series of, of, uh, uh, pretty strong popes in the modern world, but it hasn't always been like that. You know, go back to the ninth century, tenth century. Look at the popes. Look at the popes during the Renaissance. You know, sometimes we've had two or three popes at a time. Um, somehow the somehow we've worked our way through it, right? And uh, I think you start with good, solid theological principles. There's one church, right? And, and entrance into that church is sacramental. That's, the, that's Jesus Christ operating through the sacraments of the church to incorporate us, to give us the grace to incorporate us into his body. And, and from there we can go and fight as much as we want. <laughs> but we'll, we'll always be 
linked at an ontological level with each other because we're all members of Christ's body. Yeah, Nick. Uh-huh. Elaborate just a little bit on. Sure. Um, so you mentioned quite a bit about stress mm -hmm. and uh, responsibilities and how we can't control everything. We're not responsible. And yet, when I read the rule, mm -hmm. there sure seems to be a very uh, expounded upon chapter on uh, the abbot and the responsibilities. Yeah. And every time I read it, I actually feel anxiety as I'm reading mm, it. I don't mm -hmm. think I could ever do that. Yeah, um, yeah. I think about you. I'm like, I don't know how he does it. Yeah. So I don't know how he does it. Sure. You, you sure said it pretty easily. Yeah. So one of the things I tell the brothers is uh, the chapters on the abbot, uh, I'm persuaded by uh, the late Father Terrence Cardog, who just died this past year. It was a great exegete of the rule, uh, uh, an American Benedictine. And he said that uh, Benedict sees the abbot as uh, uh, embodying all the, the uh, virtues of, of a monk, right? And uh, so he should be, be virtuous and have good teaching, which is to say he's active and contemplative. Um, and so it's possible for monks reading the rule, listening to the rule, to listen to these chapters and see something to aspire to, um, rather than saying like, ah, my prior, he's, he's not doing that, and he's not doing that, <laughs> which would be tempting, and certainly I, I fail at many of these things that St. Benedict asks of me. Um, but I don't think it's the case. If you're not an abbot, then you're not responsible in the same, you're not, you don't have the responsibilities to the monks that I think are the real burden of the job in a way, right? Um, so we can aspire, we can learn from uh, that, that the you know the abbot should be you know not not quick tempered that the abbot should be uh, fair and not partial towards certain brothers and so on. We can use that as a kind of examination of our conscience to see am, where am I partial in my dealings with people? Um, how can I grow in virtue and so on? So that again, as I like to tell the brothers, I'm still pretty young. I haven't hit 50 yet. I'm really close, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, I won't be here forever, and so some, someone else will have to lead the community at some point. So each of us has to be growing in virtue so that someone can take over when I'm not uh, the prior anymore. Um, but I would say uh, this is where, you know, God is very patient. Um, God accepts us as we are right now at this moment. Love is like that, so this is a really key idea. Uh, Love means accepting the person in front of me as that person is right now. Not, um, again, it's funny, I, I'm, I'm probably going to start boring some of the older oblates because I, I have the same anecdotes, but I loved the name of this play that was running in Chicago for years, a long time ago now. Uh, I love you, you're perfect, now change. <laughs> and it's about marriage, right? So it's... Uh, uh, I never saw the show, but I think we all understand the, the idea behind it. That somehow there's this feeling like if I love somebody, I'll get him to fix himself. <laughs> and that's actually not how God treats us, right? God always invites us and persuades. Sometimes he uses hard medicine. Sometimes we learn best when we're under very difficult circumstances. But in the meantime, he's extremely patient. You know, if you look at how Jesus treats Peter, for example... Uh, he's very patient with him. And even when Peter denies him three times, when they meet after the resurrection, Jesus isn't scolding him. <laughs> right? Uh, 
when Jesus comes back after the resurrection, uh, again, he says over and over again, don't be afraid. It's me. It's me. Uh, why would they be afraid? Not only because he's a ghost, but because most ghosts who have been betrayed by their friends are coming back for vengeance. <laughs> and this Jesus is not like that. He comes back and offers them peace. And so uh, Jesus is willing to suffer. And that word patience is connected to uh, patsy or to suffer. Uh, Jesus is willing to suffer rather than force us to change. <laughs> right? And so if, if he can be patient with us, we can be patient with ourselves, accept ourselves where we're at. And then, you know, look at our conscience and say, okay, I'm going to work on this because this really is bothering me that I'm not doing better in this area. God help me to, you know, this day uh, really work at being a man of peace rather than getting angry with everybody on Facebook. <laughs> or whatever it is that I'm doing that's bothering me. Um, but I think a regular, uh, regular examination of conscience is really important uh, because we can see eventually that things that were a problem a year or two ago, suddenly we realize, oh wow, the Holy Spirit has uh, relieved me of this burden. It's not really bothering me anymore. Uh, but I can get some sense of how God is working in my life. Um, and, and the last thing I'll say to this, because uh, this whole question of being too hard on ourselves is, is really a key problem. This is one I've, I've, I've wanted to write more about, but I haven't found the right entryway into it. Um, so not only is God patient with us, uh, but one of the key ways to get out of this rut is through concentration on things outside of ourselves, especially thanksgiving to God. So uh, concentration on things outside of ourselves, especially in giving thanksgiving to God. Uh, so Shmaimon again, his last homily, you can look it up and I recommend it. Maybe I'll, I'll have Father Timothy send it to you. Anyone capable of giving thanks is capable of salvation. <laughs> right? Um, Another way I could put this is uh, a friend of mine just posted this this week. Uh, if it seems like the world is falling apart, the paradox of this is it's because we're probably not paying enough attention to the world. And what he means by that is um, what I said in the last talk I gave for the Oblates is, you know, as we're standing here, we've got these cicadas talking to each other. We've got this beautiful tree. It's full of life. Uh, we've got uh, we've got Finn hanging in there, <laughs> uh, you know, being a champ even though he's really sick. Um, there's this mysterious sense in which God is quietly bringing things to life, bringing things to His purposes, and the more we focus on where God is and what God is doing, and and stop worrying about what people are doing, <laughs> we can relax because we see that that God has all these purposes. Uh, that, he, that he, he's taking care of things, including my life. You know, there's so many things I have uh, that I can be thankful for at this moment, rather than worrying about the things that might happen tomorrow. So, each day has trouble enough for the day. We don't have to worry about tomorrow. Mark. Thank you, uh, first of all, this father. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. so, Great. <laughs> uh, that's, so I can just begin my outlay journey. Mm -hmm. uh, Anger, especially mm -hmm. anger at people who aren't doing their job. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, oftentimes, this, uh, I 
I see them not doing their job, and I realize as a, a service clerk, somebody who just takes care of everything. Generally, if mm -hmm. uh, nobody's watching self-checkout, and the person is standing there confused, and they don't know what they're doing, mm -hmm. they leave their milk, I have to look at that. Yeah. So I get upset when other people shirk their responsibility. Yeah. How does public approach this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that, that is a tricky thing because I would say part of the struggle for all of us right now is that um, I think it's fair to say, if, if I can overgeneralize here, I think it's fair to say that, that we're not as a whole very mature uh, as people together in the world today. And this manifests itself in all kinds of ways, not only... Um, in the sense of us being irrational and flying off the handle and, uh, you know, uh, peppering our Facebook feeds with, you know, the latest outrage or this, this or that. Uh, but also just in, in sort of knowing how to take responsibility for the things we are responsible for and uh, getting confused about uh, in two ways. Number one is being responsible for things we're not responsible for. And number two is just being clueless about what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, I think these things all go together. So we're kind of in a pickle that way. Um, and partly this comes about because we're, we're such a material wealthy, materially wealthy society. We had, just don't have to worry about things in the same way that our grandparents did, you know. Uh, they had to take responsibility because there was no choice. We, we can slack off a lot and get quite far. Um, so that's just a conundrum. So I think the first thing I would say, uh, and I'm, I'm a bit of an expert on anger because I'm, I'm a choleric. Um, the first thing is, uh, is to just recognize that getting angry at the situation is almost certainly not going to help. Um, I've learned that from hard experience and I'm still learning it. Uh, I think the, the only time I got angry and it had the effect I wanted was when I did it on purpose. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story and then I'm going to get back to this because this, this, uh, so I was a conductor uh, in my previous life, a musical conductor, and uh, I was uh, hired to uh, be the music director for a musical at the University of Chicago for the 100th anniversary of the school, the founding of the school. And uh, the director was a very, uh, very charismatic guy, but he was very mild mannered. And um, about a week or two weeks before opening night, we had a terrible rehearsal. The, 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 all of the performers were goofing off and making jokes and blowing their lines and oh, ha, 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 whatever, whatever. And uh, you know, people were going to pay 15 bucks to see this. Uh, so I thought it was kind of irresponsible. So afterward, at the, I went out to the bar with the director and I said, you, you got you to gotta get on their case. And he said, uh, I said, I'll do it. So um, the next day, I was still in college. And I was, um, my roommate uh, was uh, an expert debater, okay? So I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna perform my, my speech and, uh, and you're gonna tell me if it's persuasive or not, if this is gonna work. So, I, you know, I was, I think I was honest. I don't think I said anything wrong. I don't think I was saying it out of anger exactly, even though I let anger inform some of the things I said, if I can make that distinction. Um, I was saying something out of principle. We're going to charge people $15 for this. 
we owe it to them to put on a good show. Like my, my professional pride was involved in this. I don't like to people to come to a show that I'm directing and have it go badly. So, um, but I did uh, punctuate this uh, with, with one, I pounded my fist on the stage at one point, and demanded that it be better. And uh, we, we cut 15 minutes off the runtime. <laughs> and, and it was good, they did a good job. Uh, but, but it was planned, and uh, so when I talk about getting a distance from our emotions, I don't mean the emotions are bad or wrong necessarily. It's just they, they have to be incorporated in a, in a rational strategy for, for the things that we're responsible for. And sometimes having a little bit of anger is, is, is actually correct. So if you remember the great scene um, in A Man for All Seasons when uh, Thomas More finally breaks his silence, um, he gets angry. <laughs> uh, and and uh, it's, it, it, it seems right. All that, the rest of the time, he's been very careful not to let his family get upset, right? He's always consoling them. But when the time comes to speak, he wants to uh, speak to the, what, what he feels is the injustice that's been done to him. Um, and then it's, it's reasonable. It's a rational kind of response. Um, in the meantime, you, may, you might want to take a playful approach. You might just not do the other person's job. Let the milk sit out. Yeah, if I was a manager, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah, it's just the issue of managing my relationships, and I can't use anger most of the time. Can Can you use humor? <laughs> yeah. Can Can you point out what the what the other person did wrong? And sure. So do you have their do you have their number? Yeah, yeah. Do you have their number? Yeah, you could text them back and say like you left the milk out. <laughs> yeah, so something something that keeps you from getting stuck in that anger response, but but you know you're 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 taking some proper responsibility for helping teach the new person. Uh, but again, you can't change the person until he or she's ready to change. So you have to be okay with that uh, and and uh, that takes considerable inner resources to stay calm in that situation so good luck <laughs> uh, yeah Charlie what, what was the fight with uh, what was the call uh, the second largest denomination in the country which are recovering Catholics yeah yeah and a lot of them say to me uh, look what your church is doing now Expect me to, to you know, offer a rational apology for, for whatever mm -hmm. sins that the church is committing that I'll say things like, Christians and atheists, and I, yeah, I got a lot of this stuff. Um, I mostly ignored it, and that, that these were online discussions, so I mostly just didn't take the bait, um, especially if I knew that the charges were exaggerated or even untrue. If there was, uh, uh, again, one of the, the, 
one of the temptations is to say like, well, if I just pile up facts, I'll, I'll, I'll win the argument. Uh, this past week, a, a friend of mine who teaches uh, high school on the south side, uh, south suburbs, he made a really interesting observation. So he is working with a friend of his who's teaching a course at UVA uh, this fall on uh, race and politics. And so this friend of mine is white, his friend is black. They're working to uh, create this course together. And one of the things that this friend of mine is finding is that at the university level as opposed to the high school level, they use a certain strategy of talking and arguing. And he, what he said to me this week was, the way they, they talk, it's about winning, not about teaching or conveying information. So this is one of the problems. Um, these sorts of discussions are about winning an argument. And if you can switch it so that it's a question of us coming to understand something together, um, sometimes it can be like asking a question. Like, so you mentioned the Spanish Inquisition. What, uh, tell me more, what happened during the Spanish Inquisition? <laughs> like who, uh, I, I actually don't know that much about it. Maybe you can help me find out. Uh, the, so one of the things I found in these discussions was it was completely useless for me to throw out a bunch of facts, even if they were true, because uh, uh, it, it wasn't about, the, the, the discussion at that point wasn't really about getting at the truth. It was making sure that I was a trustworthy dialogue partner and I wasn't going to become defensive about the church and say irrational things out of defensiveness. That I could admit, yeah, there were aspects of the Inquisition that were a mistake. Let's say that. Um, I was just talking about, uh, you know, the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in the 17th century. Uh, the Dutch Republic's gain, <laughs> they got a lot of really smart people uh, like Spinoza, who, you know. Um, so, yeah, you know, history is full of all kinds of missteps. Um, and then, you know, one other aspect then is w once you've gained the trust of the person and they know that you're not going to just get angry with them and reject them because they disagree with uh, your take on the church, then you might be able to actually have a discussion about something else. So one of the guys I ended up actually friends with who's an atheist, um, and I, you know, I, I, I'm still hopeful that he was Church of England before he became an atheist. I'm hopeful that he'll go back to church. Uh, but we found common ground in sacred music, you know. And uh, but first he pressed me really hard. And uh, my goal was just to stay in contact with him, to try to be a friend and try to understand why he was so upset. Uh, and not say like, why are you so upset? <laughs> But just say, you know, okay, so, um, yeah, those, those uh, I don't think we have to pretend that Catholics haven't done things that were wrong. I don't think we have to pretend that. Um, in, in, in the back of our own minds, we can remind ourselves that, again, the, the template for what a, a good Christian looks like is a saint. And it doesn't, it's not everybody right away. Most of us, when we die, we're not there yet. So, um that's, that's where we want to keep our own gaze, fixed on that. And, um, uh, and then we, you know, the, the church is about forgiveness and reconciliation. <laughs> so that includes 
her own members who sin. So, I don't know. Does that kind of get yes. at your question? Yes. All right. This, this is another thing I found difficult on Facebook, is that most people who are posting about political stuff or about the pandemic are trying to either reinforce the opinions they share with all their followers or to smack down the people who disagree. And it's a question of, of getting it right and, and showing the other person they're wrong. If there were some way to work on, like, what do we agree on? So one of the, the questions I've been asking is, like, how can we be sure that the news report I'm getting is telling me the truth? Again, I'm not saying they're lying. I'm just saying, how do I know that uh, this is a trustworthy source? It seems like the more polarized our news sources become, the less reliable both sides are. Okay, so how do I know then? How, how would I go about corroborating that? Maybe I don't. Maybe I don't. But maybe that's a better place to be than being certain that this news report is something I have to be very angry about. To say like, well, if that were true, it's really a problem. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's more complex than that. I don't know. And what I found is when I would just point to this on Facebook with several persons I tried this experiment with, um, I, I was, it was assumed that I was disagreeing with their political stance, which I actually wasn't. I was simply asking how, so for instance, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll venture a, an example and risk it. Um, I kept hearing from people that peaceful protesters were being thrown into vans, unmarked vans by unmarked federal officers, okay? That might be true, it probably is true. Uh, how do we know that? What I found was that whenever people would, when I'd say, how many people have been abducted this way? No one could answer it. Literally, nobody could answer it. Now, that doesn't mean it's not happening. But then I would say, so how do you know it's happening? Well, they would send me links. And every single one of these links went back to the one story, basically. One person reporting this. Again, it doesn't mean it's not true. It's just that maybe if we look closely at it, we can get a bigger perspective and say like, okay, I don't, I don't want this to happen, but there are also these other things that are happening with it. Um, and, uh, and again, uh, I, I, I'm trying to be as neutral as possible. I just mentioned that because that was one that was coming up a lot. And uh, it was kind of surprising to me because the people who were quoting it were not necessarily uh, politically the ones that would have expected it. And so I, I took the risk of asking just how much do you actually know about this situation? And um, it's often surprising. There's one other thing that happened like this recently. Oh, this is another trick I learned from Glenn Greenwald, actually, because uh, he would commonly point out that what you think is the consensus, if you look and read between the lines, you'll find out that all of the mainstream media sources are quoting the same original source. There's not been any follow-up investigation to see to corroborate whether this is true. And um, this is part of the overall sort of immaturity and irresponsibility. Journalists have a responsibility to go out there and get the facts. And it's, but it's a lot easier just to retweet something that somebody else has already got. That's what I, that's, so that's what I'm kind of wondering about is how much of the information do we have? Uh, the Covington thing was another one. Um, the Covington Catholic kids. Um, it was actually a very liberal friend of mine who, who pointed out that she's got two kids who are the age of these kids that were uh, 
we're part of this dust up, whatever it is you want to call it. And she, she pointed out that whoever released the original video footage opened up a Twitter account for like two hours, released the footage, it went viral, and they closed the account down. And she said, we should ask ourselves, where are we getting this information from and what's their agenda? And it was really interesting because she got lots of negative responses for saying that. What time is it, by the way? 12.40. I'm sorry, we'll have to stop. I, I hope I haven't uh, opened a can of worms here by bringing these things up. Uh, I, 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 I'm just using them as examples. I really trust you to, to take me at my word on that. But I thought that was interesting, again, that... Uh, um, uh, and again, this, this isn't to justify the lawsuits that have happened since then. It's just to say that when we see something, a news story, before we react, we should ask ourselves, where are they getting their information from and how, how would I know it's true? I think that's just a reasonable thing and it'll keep me from getting upset, right? Okay, let's, uh, let's pray together and then uh, go our separate ways for today. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.